0: I was extremely privileged to interview Alistair Bryce Clegg from ABC Does. It was such a rich interview. Alistair talked about creating opportunities for children to process their emotions from the period of lockdown and how early years practitioners can best approach learning in September. As a parent of an early years child, I was soaking up every word and I'm sure you will do the same. Alistair was extremely generous with his time and the knowledge that he shared during the interview. So let's get to the chat with the man himself. So Alice, thank you so much for joining me today on the Teachers Podcast.
1: You are welcome. It's lovely to be here.
0: So unfortunately, we're still still social distancing. We are still um, having a conversation over Zoom. Um, But I do think that that's really good because it means that I get to interview people and they don't have to leave the homes because you'd probably have to come quite away to, to see me in Halifax. Um, but thank you So I always ask people to give me a life story Where they began and where they are now So do you want to start by telling me everything?
1: Well, I was 50 this year So that's quite a life story If you're going to get like, from start to finish So I'll do an abridged version of the interesting bits of my life story <laughs> um, So I am currently, uh, as we were just chatting about I've got three uh, boys who are now 20, 18, 16 And I am married and live in or just outside of Manchester, originally born and brought up in the northeast of England, uh, which still got a bit of that Geordie accent that lingers on. Although I think it's really broad until I go home and then I realise actually I'm what you'd call a posh Geordie. But that's because I spent <laughs> a lot of my time teaching in Cheshire. And in Cheshire, you can't be saying to children, "How oh, man, we're going to read a poem. Otherwise, they would look at you like they didn't know what you're talking about. So I have a refined Geordie accent. And I was born and brought up in a tiny mining village in the northeast of England. My dad worked at the Steel Steelworks. And my mum, or my mam, if I give her a proper Geordie title, was the year six teacher of the local primary school. So my entire life is it has been a school-based life it's always been full of teachers so my aunt's a teacher my mum was a teacher my mother-in-law's now a teacher my sister-in-law's a teacher so we're a family who are full of them and so I always erred on the side of teaching it was something that I was really really familiar and secure with and if I wasn't going to be a Blue Peter presenter I was going to be a teacher and that's always how it went and so I would go in with my mum sometimes when in in the days of old when I was little uh, we had baker days because he was the uh, minister for education and on a baker day it was like an inset day sometimes they were called things like teacher's shopping days which I'm sure they weren't teacher's shopping days but that's kind of called I didn't go into school with my mum because my school would be shut and I can remember vividly really enjoying Uh, seeing her in her role as teacher because she was quite creative they did loads of ace things I remember always wishing that she was my teacher because they did really exciting stuff in her class and mine felt very boring uh, after that so I always had an inkling the teaching was going to be the way that I'd go but I wanted to be a junior school teacher because I often say this on my training my mum was year six through and through until she in the latter part of her career the kind of last 15 years she did special ed but before that she was always year six because she was a good teacher and year six is where good teachers teach not like early years where (laughs) bad teachers go to die or retire and so my view of is that that her view of it as well yeah well I think it kind of was and certainly my view was that you put the people in early years who maybe we're getting towards the end of their career because it's little children and you're just playing and you're reading stories and I remember when I got my first teaching practice I'd asked explicitly could I not be put in infants and I said to my tutor in a really cocky student way look my mum's a teacher blah 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 I've spent my life working in and out schools i've run holiday clubs i've done some nanny and i've even worked as an unpaid classroom assistant in year five six for a year i know that i don't want to work with infants you're wasting my time can i just specialize with juniors and she said well no you can't because it's a primary course so let's stick you in infants for your first teaching practice get that out of the way and then maybe we can just do key stage two or juniors as it was called then so i was like oh oh, go on there so i got put in reception i remember ringing my mum and saying mum that put me in reception and it was as if I'd said to her mum my grandma's just died she was probably like oh what 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 have they done that for what a waste what are you gonna do and I was like I don't know what I'm gonna do Mom. I don't know what I'm gonna do she's like well get your head down and just you know ride it out and then you can get on with some proper teaching basically so my attitude oh, this is so it's about 1991 we're talking here. It's not like a million years ago. And my attitude going into teaching was, right, I just need to get through this blink and reception placement. Who wants to work in reception? They can't do anything. <laughs> Literally, in year five, six, you can say, line up at the door, and the line up at the door. Yeah. In reception, they don't even know what a door is, never mind a line. So you just spend your entire time herding cats going, line up over here, here, here. stand in front of me, stand one behind the other. Or just So I started thinking, this is not for me. I'm not enjoying it um I had had some really good success when I'd worked with these year five six children in my classroom assistance role I was taking groups they were responding well I was thinking right I'm going to be good at this and then I thought well if I can do it with year five six doing it with a four-year-old literally it's going to be like falling off a lock and then you suddenly realize all those strategies you have with year five six children are not the ones that you need when You're trying to deal with a four-year-old, and when you say, "Would you like to come here?" and they say, "No," what are you doing that for? Get up, come here! And so, and all my manner was wrong, my tone was wrong, my attitude stank. So, I luckily was paired with a teacher who was just brilliant. Now, I thought she was brilliant at the time, but looking back now, with all the experience I've got, I realised just how talented she was. And she basically single-handedly made me love early years in the period of a nine-week placement and it was right at the beginning of the year it was autumn terms the children were really little reception children lots of them had no preschool experience and I remember them coming in and there's still some that were crying and upset and still some that couldn't manage to get to the toilet on time and that's what our, our my initial teaching practice was full of children who just were being developmentally appropriate for their age, but weren't complying to the agreed rules of education. And she just worked magic with them to the point where she had them literally eating out the palm of her hand because she understood them and they loved her. And by the end of that placement, I got to a point where I thought, no, this is where I want to be. Because when I began to see the skill that was involved in it and also appreciate that actually it's not the end of the learning journey, the primary learning journey, where the important learning happens, it's the beginning bit. Because if you get that wrong, you're making the job harder for every teacher that comes after you. So you have a responsibility to get it right in early years because you are creating these curious critical thinkers who want to investigate and explore and be resilient and have an opinion and be independent and all of those things are within our power in early years and unfortunately Mm. what tends to happen although hopefully and COVID might really help us with this that attitude is changing that it gets squeezed out the further up the school they go. So I was talking to somebody the other day about year one transition and talking about the how empowered early years children are often when they leave reception. They can mix their own paint, they can make their own snack, they can choose their own resources, they can do all of these things themselves. And then often they go into year one and it suddenly becomes adult-focused teaching followed by tabletop activity, followed by playtime, followed by adult-focused activity, tabletop activity, lunchtime. And all of that huge independence and creativity is not utilised. And because they don't utilise They forget it, they stop doing it. So how this really powerful play-based transition uh, from children from reception to year one, for me, and again, I've had 10 years working on transition projects now as a consultant and I've worked on literally hundreds. um, If it's done well, the attainment that those children achieve or the progress they achieve is always significantly better Mm even in the good progress they made in a more formal learning setting because high level engagement has got a direct correlation to high level achievement and attainment so if you can keep their engagement high then you're going to get a potential for really good achievement and if anything is going to keep your engagement high play and investigative learning is what's going to keep that high as opposed to very sedentary chalk and talk activity based so i am hoping That I know there's a huge interest in a more developmentally appropriate transition into year one because year one teachers are really aware and senior leaders that some reception children will have missed almost half of their reception year. So you just can't start year one from the place where you might normally have started it. And so I think what I'm hoping is that a lot of year one teachers will be given permission to try something they might have wanted to try for a long time, Mm -hmm. which is to have that more play based. Approach to learning, and then they'll realize just how powerful it is, and also how inspiring as a practitioner it is. I think one of the other reasons I love early years is because you get to teach a lot. You're not just delivering, you're teaching. And I think for me, there's a real difference between the two. If you deliver, so you might deliver your phonics program, you might deliver your maths program, you might deliver your RE curriculum, and it's the same story or the same parable every week, this time every year, you tell the same story, you do the same sentence, you cut not stick the same picture. If you're in a child-led play-based environment and you're going into a space in construction where these children have used your blocks to make some mega kingdom and they've got some massive play thing going on, suddenly you're a teacher. And you're thinking, do I observe and stand back? Do I observe and record? Do I observe and scaffold? Do I interject? Do I play alongside? And if I am doing all of that, how can I bring all the knowledge that's in my head and all the next steps that I can see for you? And how can I empower your player with that other than saying, right, I love the game you're playing, but I've got five apples in this hand and three apples in this hand. How many apples have I got? At which point they're all like, no, you're all right, love. I just need a way. I'll see you in 20 minutes so I get really a massive buzz out of that ability to teach in a play space that's going to be throwing different opportunities at you all the time not all of which you have to take some you let pass by some you get wrong completely where you think oh i'm going to catch this moment and we're going to go with it and it's going to be amazing and the minute you step into their space they literally scatter or you realize you've <laughs> killed it dead um, always the best intentions but that's what i find is really inspiring so in the very early beginnings of my teaching career reception was uh, the reception i taught in with sally my lovely student teacher Um, in the 60s in their school there was a big uh, passion for team teaching and what they did was it was kind of a 1940s 50s school they knocked down loads of walls so it went from being classrooms to being big open spaces and then what they did was put loads of kids in it and realized that actually 20 years later and you know the kind of fashion had changed it became really difficult to have a year one class of 30 next year reception class of 30 who were a brand new intake you were all trying to teach at the same time so lots of curtains went up because they couldn't afford walls um but that uh, then made me specialize in early years and i ended up teaching my entire practitioner time apart from a brief foray into year six which is a whole other story Uh, But I was in key stage one. So I did nursery reception, year one, year two, mixed class, year two, lots of more reception. And then I became a deputy head of a three-form entry infant school. And I was deputy head for a year there. And it was a very formal uh, infant school, uh, which was just, as you'd expect, got really good results, but was kind of five tables 30 chairs and a carpet area in all the classrooms including reception separate nursery building and then after being deputy for a year i became head of that school and we were given some funding to build some year one classrooms because we had what we call demountables that were literally health and safety risk Mm. the roof was all kind of caving in and the walls were all bellowing out and it was damp and all sorts and so rather than build the year one classrooms what i decided to do in my wisdom as a new head which doesn't make a lot of sense now but it felt like a good idea at the time was (laughs) to build an early years unit because the early years foundation stage had just come out and so we had this half a million pounds and so what we decided to do was to take one wall off our nursery building so it would stand with three walls and build on a whole reception unit with three pods in it And so there were four pods in our building altogether. So you had 52 nursery, 90 reception, one central area for creativity and self expression. And then these four pods where these 142 children and 15 staff could be anywhere in any of the pods at any given moment learning through X. Oh my God, it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. Well, this had never been done before. So we had gone from five tables, 30 chairs, one teacher, one TA, in my room, shut my door. These are my resources. We were going from topic-led planning, where you got your topic file from the woman who'd retired or died and been in the class before you. You could tell me what you were going to be teaching five months next Tuesday, and it would be in that topic file. And we embraced massively, and the team were really up for it, that we were going to do this open furniture, free rain with resources, sand trays, water trays, outdoor provision, and we spent a fortune on lovely open blonde wood furniture. We got blinds, we got rugs, and the the space itself looked amazing until the children arrived. And the children did exactly what you would expect children to do, and our problem was we hadn't planned for children being children we'd planned for a topic-based adult-led activity-based approach in an open plan experiential early years unit so what you get if you do that is quiet carnage where (laughs) very stressed adults are just stressed all the time and children transport your resources that you've had since nineteen sixty two and they take them and they lose half of them outside. And when you put all this the water things that you possess out on a shelf because you've seen it on a on you know on the internet somewhere they just get all of them and put them in the water so 15 minutes into your morning you can't use the water because it's got everything you ever own that's in it <laughs> and then you still try to do group work so you're trying to find your group but there could be anywhere within the unit yeah. so you're walking around with your tambourine trying to just oh
0: to be fair horrendous. when i when i visited one so um I was a secondary teacher originally so when you were talking before about this is how I thought it would be it it just made me laugh so much because I'm thinking (laughs) this is why when I went into primary I was like listen I'm only doing key stage two because key stage one they don't listen to what I say (laughs) because I you know I was a secondary teacher and I was like listen they know how to line up exactly the same um but then I did um primary and um I did quite a lot of supply, but also, even when you're on a long term, you might end up covering reception class. So at this one school, I covered reception. It was three-form entry. I did think the unit was lovely, but I was stressed anyway because they put me in reception for the afternoon. (laughs) Um, But what was nice about it, it was kind of like a horseshoe, and in the middle was like, I suppose, a semicircle hall, and then they had the three classrooms round the edge of that. But the classrooms did have doors So I suppose that's how you split up your classroom. And I think in the morning, because I went in the afternoon, they were in their classrooms in the morning. But then in between each classroom was kind of like a corridor, which was two small rooms. So you'd have to go through one small room and another small room, and then you'd be in the next classroom. And then you'd have a classroom, and then one small room, then another small room. And what was really nice about that is those rooms were like the home so instead of having a home corner it was a house and then another one might be I don't know if it was painting but you know basically your different areas were in those rooms and so in an afternoon they opened all the doors and that's when you got carnage that's when I was there but I (laughs) kind of just thought this must be what it's like I'm on here for a few hours (laughs) well
1: we, we we had a year that was not the best year. I mean the children had the best time, um, but our attainment fell through the floor, staff well-being fell through the floor, mm-hmm. not to mention the year one teacher's absolute abject horror when we passed those children through to year <laughs> one, because year one we used to getting <laughs> children who could read, write, sit, you know, and they just got children who didn't. Um, but who what like we to did explore. Then, I think, yeah, Well, yeah, um, and I think the reason that I do what I do now is based on the fact that we as a team said right this isn't working and it can't be the fault of the children that it isn't working because they are just doing what children do we are getting something fundamentally wrong within this space either how we're operating how we're viewing it and so we spent maybe another 12 months which was significantly better the second year but really evaluating practice Training, discussing, trying to really drill down into what we meant by things like child-led learning because we kept saying these things all the time. Yeah, you know, we foster a child-led learning approach, but if you said to the team, me included, can you actually articulate what do you mean by child-led learning? It was a really difficult thing for us to explain what it was we actually meant while still doing a topic about houses and homes in Great Britain and still trying to do group work. And so, mm. I think about year three was the year that I felt we had really got it nailed and it started to work like a dream and so much so that we took a lot of that practice then into year one and then eventually into year two so my year one and two classrooms had their own outdoor area we had french doors put into year one and year two we invested in Um, support assistance for all year groups so children could work, we didn't have a playtime in the morning or the afternoon, we just had lunchtime play across the whole of Key Stage 1 so the children could have outdoor access and work in that kind of foundation stage way and our results were better than they'd ever been and so I got asked to go and talk in a lot of places about how we'd set up the unit, what our experience had been and how we made it work for us and that's really where the consultancy started. So mm. I used to go here, there and everywhere. And um, any money that I earned came back to the school. So that was really good for school budget. I had a brilliant deputy, Lisa, who's now a head in Salford. Um, and she was acting head two days a week, which allowed me eventually to be out of school two days a week training. And then I got to the point where I'd been ahead for 10 years and I absolutely loved my school. I loved it. And um, the consultancy demand was getting greater. And I kind of thought I am doing both of these things with as as best as I can, but I don't feel I'm doing either of them as well as I could if I just Mm -hmm. devoted my efforts to one. And so I decided after 10 years of headship, I would for one year go and do some consultancy. And at the end of that year, I would reevaluate and after 10 years in this school it was probably time for me to move to a different school anyway so if the consultancy didn't work it was no hardship for me to go back into headship because I loved it and if the consultancy did work we'd just see where it went and that would be well it's 11 years next April and it just basically grew and grew and grew and grew from there to the point where now I have the great privilege of being able to travel all over the world and work with early years practitioners in a range of settings from child minors to day nurseries to schools to academies to all sorts of things home educators and I love that and I also love the fact that there's lots of good stuff about the internet I mean there's some rubbish stuff about uh, social media but the internet made the world a much smaller place yeah, so you yeah. get to share with all of that kind of eclectic range of people who have got different views and ideas and opinions and you can Take all of that in, and that ultimately just kind of improves your practice. So, I've spent the past nearly 11 years doing that job, working all over the UK and abroad, um, and working in schools. So, I, I deliver training, so, conferences I do a lot of until uh, COVID 19. Yeah. Um, but most of my time is spent working in settings because that's where, apart from you get to try out ideas, which is great. But also when I left Headship, what I really missed was the sense of community, having that community school that belonged to you. But also that interaction with early years children that just is so rejuvenating. It doesn't matter how crappy your day is or how crappy you feel, just have 20 minutes in a reception or a nursery class and you'll feel great even when they're coming up to you and saying really rude things like have you got a spot and all that kind of the really oh, yeah. rude stuff <laughs> they uh, say I just love it I love it um, and that's when so I try and spend a lot of time there are some settings that I work with on a fairly regular basis like termly visits uh, and they tend to be very local to me and there are others that I visit fairly regularly but I love just getting in with the children and doing the thing that I started doing in the first place because no matter how much the fashion for education changes and no matter what we find out that's new fundamentally children are children and you get the same buzz from working with them now that I did nearly 30 years ago when I was stepping into that reception classroom thinking it was the biggest mistake I'd ever made.
0: Yeah yeah and um they have so many similar traits don't they as well um my my daughter definitely likes to insult me a lot but they just they talk, they talk from the heart like it's the last day of school tomorrow so she made some cards when um she got home and i scribed what she wanted to write and like the teacher i really love you so much because you give me sweets when it's a party <laughs> and they just they say what they, they feel
1: i was doing an observation last summer where the head teacher asked me to go in and, and do an observation of it and it's never i hate doing observations I love working in continuous provision Um, and when I am doing that and people who've worked with me will know I spend most of my time where the adult isn't because unless I've heard different I assume the adults must be good at what they do because they're in that position. So what I love to look for is where there are children where there isn't an adult because that's when you see the potential for real learning. It's not the Mm -hmm. same as a child doing a directed task or a child working with an adult and an adult directed task. This is where you're watching what happens when there's no Adult there, so I love that, but we were doing this carpet focus because the head wanted me to do an observation of somebody delivering a carpet focus. It was around maths and it was around shape, and she did a brilliant job, and it was the summer, and she was wearing flip flops and she had the feelie bag going, and everything, and the children were massively captivated. And she said, I wonder what's in the bag, the usual thing. And she was describing this shape. It's really smooth and it's round and it's got one edge. And put your hand up, you think, you know what it is. And all the hands went up. And she said, yes, Harry. And Harry went, you have got hairy toes. (laughs) Right in the middle of our observation. And so me and the head were just kind of sitting. She was puce. And she said, you what do you do? You can't, what can you say? You can't like say, oh, we're not talking about my toes, are we? We're guessing what shape's in my bag. And she went, oh, thank you, Harry. But does anybody want to guess what's in the bag? And afterwards she said, I was mortified. And she said, now I just keep, stop looking at my toes. Stop looking at my toes. I'm going to go home and shave my big toes. <laughs> but I just love it because nobody you know, gets away from the honesty. And I love that.
0: Yeah and it's just so funny that I kind of think all those kind of things that's that's the kind of thing my daughter would say she's quite outspoken and (laughs) (laughs) it just um I think it's interesting uh hear you talk just about everything you know about your experience but also and the the research behind it I can sort of I can just see it I think from a from a parent's point of view, because I haven't been a teacher in, in early years, just what I see on a on a daily basis, and she does love investigating at this age. She's she's nurse going into reception and it makes so much sense. And I have to say, when you were talking about going into year one as a parent, I am a little bit worried. I'm thinking she she's not gonna do well. Um sat at a desk and and I know that she's got over a year to go, but it stresses me out thinking about it right now.
1: I think also the brain-based research that that we are getting more and more of. And certainly when I first started to teach, it didn't even consider brain-based research. You taught in the way that you had been taught to teach. And even regardless of that, you taught in the way you were told to teach by the school that you moved into. So the first school I taught in was um, an infant school in Hale in Cheshire. And I had 38 children in my reception class who had full uniform, including tie and shorts. And uh, we did PE twice a week and they had to get fully changed at four, ties off, shirts off, vests off, or And just we did table based work and you did activities in the afternoon while I heard readers because every child had to read every day. But I put on the table what they were allowed to play with. So it would be jigsaws on this table, popoids on that table, drawing round the wooden shape, my favourite, on that table over there. And you would say, <laughs> red group, you're on popoids, green group, you're on drawing round shapes. And you stay there until I say, ding-a-ling-a-ling, stop, right, everybody move on. Two minutes, so, the board. Well, exactly. And you manage that behaviour. And I was on my own. When I first started, I didn't have any support staff uh, working with me at the time, and that was all I thought it should be, it was all I expected it to be, and it didn't occur to me that it could be any different. And so, when you look now at the brain based research, especially around transition, where we know that children get very stressed by the transition process. Well, apart from the fact you are five, only five weeks or possibly six weeks older than you were when you left reception. And when you've been away for those five weeks, you haven't been in the school environment with the school routine. You haven't been using those uh, recollection skills for the school stuff. You've been being a kid at home, which is how you should be. And then if you come into year one, it doesn't matter. I've just been saying this in some year one training. It doesn't matter how lovely the year one staff are. I was a year one teacher and I was an ace year one teacher. I'm a lovely person, children like me. But that doesn't matter because when you bring them in, they are worried about who am I sitting next to? Where's my coat peg? Where am I putting my pencil? This is not my usual midday assistant. Now, in reception, when we go for lunch, we go early, so we go on our own. It's nice and quiet. Now, when we go, The whole school's in. Year six are coming in. They're dead noisy because they're cock of the school. So you've got children who are anxious, even if they're not displaying it outwardly, about a myriad of little things that are bothering them. They don't know the practitioner very well. They don't know what the expectation is. They're not quite sure where mummy or daddy's going to be at the end of the day. And we know that that kind of stress impedes their ability to think and to be cognitively open to learning. So, the idea of an effective transition into year one is trying to make the unfamiliar familiar. So, for me, with my transition work, you usually start your transition after Christmas. And so, after Christmas, you're beginning to drop in story times, swaps, projects, assemblies. We used to do a lovely activity in our school where the class bear from reception and most receptions have one didn't go home for the weekend with somebody they went to year one for a week and then they came back with a suitcase and in their suitcase were lots of things that happened in year one over the week and obviously very well chosen and curated by the year one staff but then the bear would get out all of these ace things that they were doing in year one we used to do a thing that were where we used to ask our reception children in a guided talk session to come up with any questions they would like to send to year one as a secret message. And so we'd send these secret messages to year one and then we invited year one children who'd been in reception last year to come back and bring the answers to the secret messages. And initially, I think the staff thought they'd be saying things like, what's it like studying ancient Greeks or, you know, Great Fire of London? <laughs> but they didn't. The question's like, do you have connects do you get sausages at lunchtime but the year one children loved it and they'd come and bring back the answers and say Mm. you know we do have connects and we also have this and i like it on a thursday when we get so you build this kind of ethos yeah. That year one is an ace place to be and these children who were in reception now in year one are coming back and telling you how much they enjoy it the things that are the same but the things that are different we don't get to do that but we do get to do this and this is ace and this is my favorite so the more you can make that unfamiliar familiar the more equipped these children are to enter that year one space thinking right well I'm not worried about where that what happens there because I know that I'm not worried about that because I know that and I've been there and I've had a story from them and I've seen that and we've done that so already you are creating an atmosphere where levels of well-being are higher so therefore the potential for learning is greater but also we know that in terms of brain development, when children are stressed, it affects some of the neural pathways that their brain makes, especially at kind of four and five, when you are forming those neural pathways for life. And so if we are stressing them massively over transition and like doing proper work in year one, especially the more vulnerable learners. I mean, there are some children who go into year one, they're like, right, I am all over this. Hey, I could be a classroom assistant. I'm ready for formal learning. Yeah give it to me but then there are if you look at statistics like around good level of development there are still a significant number of children who don't achieve it's it's not quite a third of children who don't get a good level of development by the end of reception so after a year of play-based learning there are almost a third of children are still not at what the government say is a good, I mean we could debate that for an hour as well, but what is a good level of development? So already you've got a third, potentially, who are going to go into year one who even in a play-based model have not yet progressed. They are never in a million years going to make that progression in a more formal model. So I think the panic that when I've done a lot of project work, sometimes local authorities, sometimes individual schools, sometimes clusters, and talk a lot to year one teachers who are brilliant, committed, dedicated, it's nothing to do with that, but they will say their worry is huge amounts of pressure. That there's the year one phonics checker huge amounts of pressure from year two about attainment at the end of key stage one and they are given phrases or phrases are used like year one time to get some work done time to hit the ground running I've heard members of staff say you're in big school now so when children will say things like can we get the toys out can we get the construction out no or after you've finished your work or you know and I think
0: yeah it's after you finished your work is yeah, it's a punishment and 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 my nephew is in year one it's not continuous provision and he really struggles with that and that and that's what he needs yeah
1: but and also it's if you say after you finish your work no self-respecting child is going to say well now you've said that what i'll do is i'll give you a hundred percent on this activity yeah and it might take me quite a long time but hopefully i'll have some time to play they're like right i'm going to give minimum input to this because what i want to do is get over there and do that so yeah. therefore for this if you can acknowledge and again talk a lot about this when i'm training that play is an effective vehicle for learning it's not something you do before the learning starts or after the learning's finished so it's not a holding space play waiting Mm -hmm. for an adult to come and teach you something and it's not what you go on to to keep you busy while i'm teaching somebody else it's acknowledging that a developmentally children learn way better a play-based approach if there is rigor in your play and b play brings high levels of engagement which link directly to high levels of attainment so if you can foster an approach in early years and in year one where you are engaging children through a play-based approach but that play is underpinned by observation assessment and planning then you are going to get learning that's going to take place within play and I can put my mortgage on it it will happen it's not the same as saying right in year one we're going to do play based right what would you like to do today kids right get the activities out get the kettle on Tracy they're leading their own learning that's what he said they had to do you'll get a coffee (laughs) on it's about saying right This environment that I've created based on observation and assessment is going to engage these children in discovery based learning. It's going to keep them inquisitive. It's going to keep them in the moment. And I as an adult will do some direct teaching and give them pearls of wisdom that they need to have. But I'm also, it's what we do a lot in early years, rather than pull children out of play to teach them. So I'm going to pull them out of their highest level of engagement to come and work with me which is already going to dip their engagement. So I'll have to really ramp it up and do that thing that we all do, where we're all gasping, oh, look at this. Oh, I wonder what's in here. Oh, that's marvellous. And you do that to try and keep their engagement up. So instead of doing that, I'm going to take this learning into the play space. And if it's appropriate, I will deliver it into their domain of play rather than pulling them out of that to mm-hmm. come and be over here. And when you get the hang of that, and it can take a while, but when you get the hang of it, it's magical. It is absolutely magical that you see, especially your more disengaged learners, flourish because they're learning in a way that's developmentally appropriate. Which sometimes people will say to me, yeah, but my more ables, again, interesting term, we could debate that for an hour. My more ables need more formal." And actually, what you're saying is this five year old, because they're further down their learning journey, doesn't need to play anymore. This five year olds not going to get high level of engagement from play because they're better at writing or they're more articulate than the one next to them. But if your provision is rigorous enough, if you've got challenge in play, that five year old who's progressed well down their learning journey should flourish even better because play is encouraging Creative critical thinking it's encouraging resilience it's encouraging independence it's encouraging social interaction it's encouraging you to plan it's encouraging you to execute all of those things that you don't get to do with a worksheet that's a word search about can you find the tricky words here so it's never really a case for me that children need formal they don't need formal or they're ready for formal It's about saying if your environment is appropriate and based on the needs of your children, they will flourish. Mm. Which is kind of what I spend a lot of my time working with people on and seeing some brilliant success.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just um, listening to you, I'm thinking, yeah, we forget, don't we? We we forget what it was like as a four year old. And, you know, those worries are legitimate worries. And they're the kind of worries that we Mm. would have as an adult, um, you know, going to a new job. For example, you know, how do I get there? So if you've got yeah. to get the bus. But we expect that they won't have those worries because, well, they're going into a new class but it's the same school. And we also, And I'm
1: lovely and, you
0: know, yeah, I'm going to be dead it.
1: welcoming. And,
0: but they know who well, I am because they've seen me in assembly. You know, we forget all those it, things.
1: It's like, say, you, you are a qualified teacher, you go for your second job, you go to the school, you love it, you meet the staff in the staff room, you love it, you have re-interview, you do really well. You come in during the holidays, you set your classroom up, you meet a couple of members of staff in the corridor, you have a lovely chat. It doesn't stop you being dead nervous on the first day and also Mm. taking a good couple of weeks just to get in the swing of how it works, how it works in the staff room, where the parents come. So if that as an adult, with all the experience you've got and all the knowledge you've got as an adult, is still difficult. A child who is starting a new class even those with a familiar cohort is going to have all of those, but they haven't got the back catalogue of experience to make sense of the world. So what we sometimes try and do as adults is assume how children will process something with an adult head on. And actually when you're four and not a great deal, I mean, a lot's happened to you in your life, but compared to somebody who's 50, there's a huge difference. How I process that is going to be very different how they process that. And so I think, You've got to remind yourself all the time that not only do you think like a four-year-old in terms of setting up a play-based environment, but how you process thinking. And sometimes I think as well for us, when you see children and people will talk about behavior and inappropriate behavior, and behavior is never the child. Behavior is always a symptom of something the child is trying to process or articulate but can't. And um, so therefore when you've got children who are showing particular behaviors it usually means there is something else that you need to help them to realize articulate or focus on and the behavior is only a, a way of expressing what they, they're unable to express mm. and so trying to dig under that in important times like transition and make an year one as familiar as you possibly can takes away a lot of that underlying stress that doesn't need to be there there are enough stressful things that will happen like assembly or lunch or pee that are part of the routine that you can't change but there's so much about the routine that you can change so why would you add any extra levels of stress if you could eradicate them
0: I also think we forget as well, don't you know, you think about key stage two and you think, well, the learning is subject. You learn in math, you learn in English. And we forget, I mean, even even in Key Stage Two, they're learning more skills, but you forget in, in EYFS and Key Stage One, it's it's other things they're learning as well. And actually the maths part and the English part are actually very small parts. And you know, you talked about, you know, yeah. the learning to plan and the learning to create. And I think, yeah, actually they are just just as we've learned as adults to plan out your day to get, I don't know, your work done as well as your washing. I see my yep. four year old and I'll go, Hattie, I need you to do this. And she'll go, and she'll say to me, No, I haven't planned to do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't, she, I'll, say, I'll Mom, say, Hattie, come, you need to come and have your tea now. Tea's ready. No, I haven't planned that. <laughs> I, I've planned to play this. <laughs> Like, you know
1: what, you've, you've got trouble ahead, I'm telling you now.
0: <laughs> oh, I do, because she's not even in reception yet. Um, but it's, play is a practice, isn't it? And I think I I have learned a lot more about early years just just by having a four-year-old and, and listening to people like yourself um, and sort of seeing it in action. And I think it's just so fascinating and it's, it's made me realise that actually we all still learn through play like just just today, I was trying out a new software to show the team, but I did that by playing with it, and I explored it, and that's yeah. and we we forget that that we still have that nature and we still have that need, but we've just forgotten that's what it is.
1: I think it's human beings fundamentally. If you took us back developmentally to you know the time of the cavemen, that's how we would have learned all of those early skills mm. would be through play and adult play and children's play. And technology and all sorts of society kind of squeezes that out. But fundamentally, you know, one of the other things I love about early years, particularly, is that it's often a playful space to be for children and adults. I, I remember, I mean, not, not that you're necessarily sitting in the home corner with a pan. On your head, although I have done that on more than one occasion. (laughs) But because you and your team are engaged in play with children and there's lots of creativity and invention going on, you tend to have quite a playful atmosphere and a creative atmosphere in terms of how you interact with each other. And that's also really good for your soul as an adult that you're working with somebody else, especially. And you will know it because everybody has it at some point when you find that relationship with that other member of staff or member support staff where you don't even have to speak you can just look or you just yeah. know I mean I've had that on more than one occasion especially with, with support staff I've worked with in classrooms where it feels like you are a proper double act and you just don't even have to speak you just know what's happening and that kind of synergy is lovely to have but then for our children you're coming into school some of them will have had siblings and, and a, a large family network others won't have siblings they might just have one significant carer and then children have got to learn how to communicate in a diverse range of ways with a diverse range of people and not just verbal communication but non-verbal communication so what people faces mean when they do certain things what particular body gestures mean so you're starting with a lot of four-year-olds who are really trying to gauge what it is that's going on in this whole world even before they open their mouth and speak and so when they progress into year one still lots of them are really learning about what is appropriate verbal and non-verbal communication they haven't got the language skills, they haven't got the vocabulary for expression. So, if you don't get that right first, then you're stuffed in terms of everything else mm. because well being has to be at the very top of everybody's list always. On entry to year one, especially this year, in terms of the fact that year one is going to be very different, somebody emailed me the other day, literally, yesterday, or the day before, to say, I have been told, in non-certain terms, there is no play in year one for point of entry. There is not time to play because we've got so much to catch up on. What can I say to my senior leadership team to persuade them otherwise? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so the question you've got to ask is, for children who have missed half a year in reception, had a weird old time at home where they've had some four-year-old's understanding of the whole pandemic, Mm -hmm. how can you not put them into a situation going back into school where it's developmentally appropriate and that's a key term for me it's not about preference it's about development how would you not put them into a player-based approach or people that say well we do play for the first two weeks and then we start doing the work and that also just kind of smacks of well you don't acknowledge that play can be a vehicle for learning then what you're doing is thinking well play is just a soft fluffy thing to get you in and once you've got used to the space then we start the proper stuff so mm-hmm. well-being has to be top of the list year one for me and again i've done lots of talk with year one teams recently and talked about if you have got an environment that you're introducing play to there are no list of essential things you're going to have to have What you have in your year one space and your reception space and your nursery space has got to be based on your children's needs. And when you get these children, you're not going to get that lovely assessment from reception that you normally get that tells you exactly where they are over the areas of learning. So you're going to have to do some of that work yourself. So create a space that allows you to assess. So not doing an assessment in your space making a space for assessment and they are different so not pulling children out into the cloakroom with a laptop would say and write looking at the 17 areas of learning get me early years team to help me out with this how would i assess these children against foundation stage assessment so looking at early years outcomes tapestry development matters too simple whatever it may be and setting up a year one environment that allows you to assess or makes it easy for you to assess whilst observing children at play. But within that environment, you're gonna have to have things that allow children to articulate their experience of lockdown. So that doesn't mean turning your home corner into a COVID ward on hospital. It means, because what you're not gonna get is an articulation of lockdown. You're gonna get a four-year-old's articulation of a four-year-old's version of a four-year-old's concept of what it was so what you might get is completely different and often very abstract versions of just emotions they're trying to replay in their own head because they can't make sense of it so you're gonna have to have i would have thought some role play and not great fire of london role play and not florence Nightingale role play one of the things i talk a lot about with with early years teams and similarly with year one is any area of provision you create you've got to ask yourself the question why do i have that there i can't just have it because i've always had a sand tray or Mm. i've always had a home corner why have you got a home corner what skills and experiences do you want children to have through home corner play or through role play look at all of those skills and experiences and say right potentially in my role play area in my sand area in my small world area children can investigate all of these things so i need to create a space that has the potential to allow them to investigate all of these things so you might think in year one well what i'm going to do is i'm going to i'm going to have a role play but i'm going to have a supermarket because then you can put little price tags on and the children can shop and they can use money and that's maths and that makes me feel like we're learning something but if you go back to, a well, why do we have role play? It's not exclusively to do maths in. It's about allowing children to explore all of these different aspects of being human, as well as fantasy and imagination. It's about them being able to relive the world that they live in. And not many children are going to be able to revisit their COVID lockdown experience through the supermarket, especially when they haven't been to the supermarket for months and months and months. Mm. So I wouldn't have a supermarket. I want to have a role-play space that's open-ended enough that if my children want to play out their home-based experience, they can. But also, if they've got some kind of convoluted concept of virus, which they're linking to their own kind of experience of superhero play or Ben 10 or viruses, and we don't know where those connections are going to be. They might want to be doing space rockets to kill aliens and that might be all linked into something they've heard about killing the virus so Mm -hmm. you need a role play space that will allow superhero in alien space play as well as me at home as well as me missing my family as well as baby doll play so you need to think about does my provision really allow the children to explore all of those skills Or am I pushing them down a very narrow path that is the shop or the post office or the travel agent or whatever it may be? And actually, how many of my children have ever been in a travel agent? How many of my children work in the vet? Yeah. And then I would think small world, which is brilliant anyway for storytelling, story writing. It's great for writing structures when you get further on through year one. But You'd need small world provision and lots of it To allow the children, and the whole point in small world is being able to create a small world that is real. So my version of a real world that I live in, and a small world that's fantasy that lives in my head, and also small world of story, all that kind of thing. So it's essential not just to do Goldilocks and the Three Bears and Finger Puppets or the Gruffalo, because yes, you might be reading that story on entry to year one and it's gorgeous. But if I thought about all the skills of Small World, only one of them is to be able to retell a familiar story. So I might be missing out 299 skills because Mm -hmm. I've only put out the Gruffalo. So what I might be thinking is, right, my children are going to need lots of opportunity to revisit their own life for transition, anxiety, but also for COVID and lockdown. So I need to make sure I've got lots of opportunities for small world resources that could be them, their mum, their dad, their auntie, their granny. A lot of the children might have had a death in the family so Mm. a lot of coming back again i was saying this the other day to somebody and i did a blog when i did old people song for four-year-olds one of the things i'm jumping but i'll jump back one of the things we had to do with the children um before we started the project was to prepare them for the fact that somebody might die without saying somebody might die but Mm. also for that series two we had sky Whose mum had died nine weeks before the program started of cancer, so she was really very very aware of death, and she would say quite openly, "My mummy has died, or my mummy is dead," and she would say that to the other children. So we knew that she was quite open about it, as was her dad in discussing it, and so we knew that we had to also equip the other children with a concept of death, which is Mm. not something that our curriculum even really looks at. So I got together a lovely range of books about death that are very early years appropriate. Some are a little more frank in terms of their dealing with death and some are a little more conceptual. And actually, if you search bereavement on my blog, you'll get that post with all the books on it. But for going back in September for both early years and year one, it would be really wise for staff to have added in to their resource bank some books about bereavement. And it doesn't have to be books that are called My Granddad Died. Mm -hmm. They can be books about loss. So Oliver Jeffers does a lovely one about a a bottle with a stopper in it. And it doesn't mention death in any way, shape or form, but it's a little girl whose heart is in a a bottle with a stopper Mm -hmm. on. And then in the end she breaks the glass because she goes through the process. So there are lots of lovely ones that they can visit. So as an adult, you're going to be creating opportunities, not like let's have a talk time. Let's pass the pebble and talk about death. Not that, no. but opportunities for children to express what they're likely to want to express, but also acknowledging that children don't articulate in an obvious way a lot of the time. They will articulate in a very abstract way. So if you've got lots of open-ended small world resources, some linked to them, so you might make little mini mes which are big. early years where you just laminate photographs of the children so they've got themselves within their play Mm. or you've got little wooden pegs or dolls that are faceless emotionless genderless so if i want to reenact how i'm feeling about covid or the death of my granddad but all i can get is kind of a blonde haired pale skinned smiley Peg doll that makes that leap a little bit harder for me but if yeah. i get something that's representative so yeah. it's got a kind of a head shape and a body shape that could be me could be my mom could be my dad could be my grandma could be my granddad so i'm more likely to be able to project onto and facilitate what i need to through that yeah so it's about those open-ended ambiguous resources that are in place to allow children to recreate the world in which they live as well as a fantasy world as well as a world that's linked to story so whereas you're on point of entry i'm just saying to a lot of the year one teams that i work with try and keep well-being at the forefront of your mind don't really resist the urge of that top-down pressure because if you don't invest in the well-being now you'll be fighting that battle for the rest of the year if you spend a good chunk of time and really invest in making those children feel safe and secure Mm. then actually their progress will be faster because they are able to make that progress both in terms of maturity and cognitively because they're in a developmentally appropriate space but in your provision make sure you've got plenty of open-ended ambiguous provision that allows for the retelling of my life as well as the more Focus stuff that might be linked to story or topic or whatever it may be that yeah. you're talking about.
0: We have the book Granddad's Island actually, which is nice. So it doesn't talk about death. It's it's Granddad wants to go live on an island, and it, and the little boy goes with him and comes back without him. Um, so I find that one nice, just interesting because um, I mean we uh, we are very lucky. We haven't had any deaths in our family, and we've talked about the virus and the germs and um, you know what we have to do. And we, you know, we can't go places, but haven't specifically talked about death. But I think at that age, anyway, it's it's not always. So yes, they want to process their emotions, but it's also questions. I mean, I think yeah. for the last two months, um, she's talked about death at bedtime every day. Um, mm. when you die, mummy. Um, and so we <laughs> we've gone through a lot of different things with that, like okay. And I'm thinking, well, I think what it is, is that she's worried that I'm going to die. So we've gone through what would happen if mummy and daddy did die, who she would live with. And we've gone through, you know, because she's, I think she's worried that we'd die when she's a child. So now she repeats back to me, you'll die when I'm an adult and I have my own children. And, um, but I'll still miss you though. you know and i think it is it's it's, they have to talk through it all the time and ask those questions and i think you can feel a bit like oh all right when i die 10 times a day but it's 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 that worry isn't it coming out in a in a different way
1: it is and they just need you to be honest and it's that processing of that still doesn't make sense that still doesn't make sense that because in their little world it doesn't because their concept of adult their concept of you know, when, again, we do a lot of intergenerational work and one of the things we often do in a project is to take the children through, and it's about 15 questions. You don't sit them down and do a questionnaire, but in the course of, of the kind of initial meeting with the children, and we talk to them about what it is to be old. And we'll say things like, do you know any old people? And they'll say, often, you're old to me. Or they'll say, my <laughs> sister's old. And you might say, well, how old's your sister? And they'll say, oh, well, she's 10. Okay. do you know anybody else who's old and they often don't say grandma and granddad or they'll you ask them things like what do you think old people like to do and that often flummoxes them and they sometimes play. say things like watch the children yeah or um, what do you think old, do you think old people People eat things that are different from you and sometimes they say yes and sometimes they say no but they show very little appreciation or understanding of what it is to be anything other than four and old yeah. is like six and above and yeah. after the project we ask them the same questions again and what always happens is they can suddenly articulate oh well Beryl's old and Nancy's old because she's 83 and she has a stick and sometimes and suddenly you realize after this time together their knowledge and understanding of the concept of age because they're living it. It's a real experience. It's not an abstract experience. It's real. And they've got people who are in their lives who they can study and talk to and appreciate, who talk to them and tell them things. So now they've got some information in their filing cabinet about what it is to be old. And that really helps with their understanding. But this constant... is. Children hear things and they need to process it and they need reassurance. And again, if you said, "Oh, don't worry, Mummy's not going to die," that's a dangerous game to play because, hand let's hope you not touch wood. Yeah. But, no, no, um, she, she, we've we've talked
0: about like hopefully I won't. And if I did, you know, this would. Yeah. The, the, you know, don't worry because you wouldn't be here on your own. And these are the people that you would live with, and they would look after you. So she knows that. I suppose it's a possibility. She doesn't think that it's. N- definitely not going to happen
1: but i think when we don't tend to talk about death a lot i think we avoid it in schools and settings i think if anything dies like when you hatch the chicks and one dies you always whip it out the incubator quick before the children come in if a fish dies you always push down the loo and get a new one and actually a lot of the advice is that if if a child has a pet or a school pet and the pet dies you should acknowledge the death of the pet with the child, even though they would cry, probably, or not, because they get to practice the concept of death, but also they get to practice in in several steps removed the process of grieving for -hmm. the school rabbit or for the home hamster. That means that when a significant death does occur, be that a grandparent or whatever, they've got some of the resolve that they need to be able Mm -hmm. to deal with that death. I know from my own boys, we've had chickens at home. We used to have, when I was a head teacher, we had chickens and a cockerel and a goat and a pig in our school that lived in the central area. And things were always dying because they do. And what the children loved more than anything else was when we had the chicks, they loved the cute chicks. But if one died, especially if one hatched and then died, all they wanted to do was to have a look at and touch and pass around and talk about and poke the dead one. And obviously, well, I'm saying obviously, you may choose to do it. We didn't choose to pass a dead chick around at story time, but we did give them opportunities to look at it and ask questions about it and talk. Mm. Because they'll say things like, is it going to be alive again? Or is it going to get up? Or is it just to sleep? And you have to say, well, no, it died. Why did it die when well, we don't know why it died? And then they might say things like, am I going to die? Yeah, so. Yeah. I think one of the things I think I say in that blog post is that I wish in our school curriculum that from early years onwards in an age appropriate way, we talked about death because it is the only one surefire thing that's ever going to happen in anybody's life is they're going to die and they're going to experience death, but we never Talk about it. We never did we were just you know historical figures who died, but what we don't talk about is your death is everywhere and actually it can be really healthy and done in a very positive way, but it just has to be age appropriate because what Mm -hmm. you don't wanna do is scare children to death by literally talking about it in a way that's not appropriate for them, which is why a lot of those early books are all just about a sense of loss. Or a sense of you know emptiness. They're not actually talking about you know when Granddad died, but I think there will be. And going forward with COVID-19, there are likely to be a lot more deaths. And I know mm-hmm. in terms of my intergenerational work, it looks like for at least another 12, possibly 18 months, nothing will be happening in terms of intergenerational projects because children can carry the virus and. People in old people's homes are the ones who are most likely to die from contracting the virus. So it would be madness to bring the two groups together. But it's such a shame because the benefits are astronomical. I mean, the benefits to the older adults on all the project work I've done has been remarkable, like properly remarkable. And I know when you watch it on the telly and it's Channel 4 and you're thinking, oh, well, it's obviously Channel 4, so they're just going to report the good bits. But actually, the the project results for all of the adults in both series so far, and the third series was about to be filmed just as lockdown hit. So whether that will happen maybe sometime in the future. But also the second series, particularly that I was involved in, was looking at the impact on the children. Mm -hmm. So we looked at the impact on adults and there's lots of research out there that says yes it's really beneficial for adults but is it beneficial for children and what we found was the children made significantly better progress than an average child at that stage of development especially around things like language personal social imagination um, we had adult diaries that were filled in on a weekly basis. We did the Leuven skills of wellbeing and involvement. Uh, key adults tracked the children. We did a vocabulary assessment. Um, we had a uh, university that did a facial analysis uh, assessment. So all sorts of different ways of assessing where the children were on their journey. And every single child, regardless of their starting point, made significant progress in all areas. And some made like phenomenal progress. But basically what they were doing was for 12 weeks, every single weekday, between nine o'clock and three o'clock, 10 children with 10 adults who basically worked almost on a one-to-one and the adults love nothing more than having a child sit and yatter on about any random thing that child's yatter on about, yeah. and yeah. the children would listen to the adults sit and yammer on about all the things that they wanted to talk about. But like the magic of mealtimes, I love they had lunch together every day. And the, the fact that I know as a parent of three kids, and we had our first two very close together, which was both careless and unnecessary. <laughs> and it means that by the time you've got th- three, and the first two are you know just over eighteen months apart, that it's your life is just full of managing the menagerie that is tea time. Yeah, yeah. But when you've got ten adults and ten children, and adults are saying no sit up, no tuck your chair under, no don't put your knife and fork, no hold your knife and fork, oh you try a bit, I'll try a bit, do you want a bit of mine to try? Yeah. You suddenly found that the behaviour at meal was amazing the children were trying food they'd never eaten there was an amazing conversation parents were reporting their manners were significantly better at home the children were telling parents off for their sloppy table manners it was just all of that kind of transformative social behavior because these adults had time yes and in. An inclination to invest in these children and it's not that I didn't want to invest in my children it's just that when you are a busy parent managing yeah. the washing and the cooking and the doorbell and everything else yeah you haven't got that so again I think anybody that's been involved in an intergenerational project would say the same thing the results for the children are just gorgeous and the friendships they make and the social bonds they they create will stay with them for the rest of their life even if they don't remember it all as crystal clear as we will as adults the fact they've made those neurological pathways the fact they've forged those relationships the fact they've had those interactions are now part of their dna moving forward and that's a magical thing and that and that's such a shame about lockdown because
0: you know it's not just about projects like like this because I would absolutely love my children to be involved in projects like this. I remember as a child, we had a lot of family friends who were like my grandparents, older friends. So I had a, a lot of, um, kind of aunties, not really aunties die. Um, while I was a child and I, and I went to a lot of care homes and I remember being, um, the entertainment. I absolutely remember <laughs> being in the entertainment, but I thrived on that. That's probably why I went into performing arts, but, um, It's sort of in my family, um, so my children have got um, both grandmas, both granddads, they've got a great granddad, um, and and they do really enjoy that interaction, and that's what's being a shame, and our next door neighbour, I'd say, is probably nearly 90, but every time he comes out for um, a smoke, which is probably every 15 minutes, because I'm not sure if you remember, he has, he waves to see if the children are about, because that's all he craves. He wants them to go out, and they absolutely love going out. And they're like, yeah. you know, it's Joe there, it's Joe Having there. A chat, yeah. This is it, and and you know, all you have to do is say hi, and it's like, my scooter's yellow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is it? You know, and it's just, it's just that interaction, that conversation that um, adults who are stressed don't want to hear about, really.
1: <laughs> well, you've got to, it's true. You've got too much else going on, but yet, I remember once. Um, With the Channel Four project, one of the older adults, Pauline, uh, was complaining that the the production company had bought a lovely pink dolls house for the girls. It was discussions were had, but they were using this uh, dolls house because they had free play in the afternoons where they could just mingle. And she was saying there's not enough furniture in this dolls house. There's not enough furniture in this dolls house. And then she said um, there weren't there were so many dolls and only two beds. And so she was saying to the children, well, this is no good because there are three dolls and two beds. They weren't bothered because the doll then just slept on the floor. That was okay.
0: (laughs) Uh,
1: But she went back to her flat that night. She got a Colgate toothpaste uh, box. She made a bed out of it using sellotape and scissors. She got an old hanky and cut it up and made a little cover for the bed. And. Brought back the next day this Colgate bed with a hanky blanket and presented it to these girls like it was, you know, she'd spent so long making it. They were so thrilled. They just thought it was amazing. She was over the moon at their reaction and then they yeah. placed it in the thing and it was Pauline's bed and you could see in that one moment that she'd had the impetus to go home and make something out of a toothpaste box that she'd never done for years and years and years since her own kids were little yeah. and then she got back in spades when they just went oh that's amazing and i love it and it's the favorite bed and you can just see for all of them their levels of well-being suddenly were chunking up here which then makes you want to do more stuff like that because you want to yeah. have that feeling so it, it feeds off each other it's it it's it's great it's two resources that are sitting there largely untapped and actually they can learn so much from each other it makes old people younger and it makes young people older in terms of their knowledge of the world i loved it i love being part of it
0: and it just it, it gives them a reason doesn't it because it's difficult to find things to entertain yourself when maybe you're not as fit as you once were and you can't go the places you want to go and you know and you're on and they, you know, you're on a lot of medication that makes you tired
1: yeah and they just stop doing stuff so they just we put pedometers on the older adults and at the beginning of them uh, they project some of them were sitting down or lying down for 19 20 hours a day mm. so you'd be in bed or you'd be sitting in your chair watching the telly you'd get up and go and make a meal or a cup of tea and then you come back and watch the telly but when you were the four-year-old who's nicked your stick and is now using it as a gun to shoot another four-year-old of the back of a chair and you've got to go and retrieve it there's not an option and when <laughs> we did the dancing um and they were like no 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 i i'm not dancing you just get a four-year-old that comes and says come on come on grabs their hand pulls them come on you're dancing and of course with an adult they'll say no i don't want to do it But when it's a little four-year-old saying come and dance with me they're like oh go on then Then all of a sudden you can see them jigging around
0: yeah. no
1: stick no frame and you think that was always in you you've just needed that little spark of joy to bring it out and actually you're yeah. discovering things about yourself that you didn't think you could do and that makes you feel better about yourself which Raises his self esteem, and so it goes, and so it goes.
0: Yeah, I could talk about this forever, but I, we best move on because
1: um, maybe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but oh, I love I, I love talking about this because um, I, I'm that parent who goes who goes down the street um with my children and and see somebody, I'm like, say hello, say hello, make their day, <laughs> um because I just think it's so important, and and I know as a child I did that a lot, and um. And it was just such a nice thing. Um, right, what do you think of the new early learning goals?
1: I think, um, um, I think, Oh, it's the early days, um, that early years is, is, there's lots of it that's very good and there's lots of it that's not so good. And we are still very driven by This idea of, you know, development matters or early years outcomes is a map of children's progression. And I think it was famously described as it should be viewed as a landscape for children to investigate rather than a map for children to follow. And also development matters and early years outcomes are not the ultimate. So they often become a bit of a checklist and everybody's just like, well, I'm going to tick my way through they are indicators of ages and stages of development, they cover prime and specific areas but they are not the entirety of what a child should be experiencing through early years and we get really hung up on outcomes and good levels of development and what that turns into and again it's no fault of the reception staff at all but you end up teaching towards the good level of development because you know you are going to be judged by how many of your children reach that good level of development and people are still given targets before they see the children so I still work with people where they said well we got 68 percent last year so my target for next year is 72 percent GLD like but you haven't even met these children yet how can you get a percentage increase on children you've never met and that then stopped a developmentally appropriate approach to teaching and learning and Mm -hmm. starts getting to the spring term when you're looking at your children thinking oh my goodness there's my target there's my children there's only one way to get those children to that target and that's to bring in lots more of the phonics and the maths and the targeted teaching and the adult focused learning so it becomes a self-perpetuating myth the problem we've got as well i think is that If you, towards the end of the summer term, under normal circumstances, are trying to push your children towards a good level of development, you'll bring in lots more of the more formal teaching because that's what you need, especially in terms of the good level of development for writing, which is really difficult to get. So, you do lots of focused work with those children towards the end of the year, and they achieve their good level of development and you've got evidence that says they have the moderator comes in and agrees with you and then the end of term happens so you've got a good three or four weeks where you're starting to do things like celebration assemblies sports days trips out parties so the level of which they were working to get that good level of development is not the level at which they work and what i find is a lot of that knowledge that they acquired latterly Is not knowledge that's sticking with them. It's very much that kind of frontal load knowledge that they're using at the time. But because they don't use it, it's not well rehearsed. Therefore, they forget it. So then you get children who come into year one, get assessed within the first two or three weeks of year one, who are supposed to be at a good level of development or better. And all of a sudden they aren't. So you've got year one teachers thinking what on earth is going on? Why do I keep getting these over-assessed children coming into year one, when actually they're not over-assessed for when their assessment was taken, and the reception staff will have evidence of that, but actually what they haven't done is progressed at a rate where they've been able to retain all of the knowledge they've acquired, some of the latter knowledge they acquired, they acquired very quickly, didn't get a chance to consolidate and rehearse it, so they lost it. So really, year one, haven't got all these children at the good level of development. They're going back to prior to where the concrete knowledge is and are building from there. And I think in an ideal world, we would say, stop teaching to the good level of development and let progress children a developmentally appropriate way. But the education system that we currently have is top-down pressure for results. Attainment standards, this is where you need to be. Everybody has to be here, whether you like it or not. Not so much about progress, more about attainment. And until that changes, until there is a fundamental change in how schools and practitioners are judged, we are always going to get that pressure. And I think also in early years, not always, but often, senior leaders in primary schools, particularly or academies tend to be more key stage two based in their knowledge they don't have to have a tend to have a lot of knowledge about early years and how it works Mm. and so understandably they apply a key stage two model of attainment to early years foundation stage where children's brain development is different where their physical development is different the level of maturity is different so you've got early years teachers who are having to comply to a key stage two model of teaching and learning and I get early years practitioners that say to me things like, we do book scrutiny, we have six books, a maths book, a sentence book, a guided writing book, a topic book, an RE book, and like, bloody hell, sorry to swear any podcast. When do you have the time to fill in all of those books? And if you fill in, in all of those books, when do these children get an opportunity to play? because evidencing in books in that way is not developmentally appropriate for foundation stage children. It doesn't mean to say you won't have evidence. It doesn't mean to say the children aren't going to have opportunities to write I and mean, invite at quite a high level, but they don't evidence it in the way that you might evidence it in year six. So fundamentally that's still the general ethos of primary education in our country, which means it is top down. And so we talk a lot in early years about this bottom-up method which is often referred to as the b-day method because it comes from the bottom-up it's slightly unfortunate term I know what I mean because <laughs> you know people talk about a shower method coming down um yeah. and I think it's for practitioners and it can be really hard And I get this but it's not about just going as an angry practitioner and saying well we that's not right in early years we don't do it that way it's about Making it research based because there is so much research out there about physical development, brain development, cognitive development, and going to your senior leadership team not just with an argument about, but this is what the research says, also saying, and I've got an alternative. And a lot of the work that I do is on the alternative bit to say, well, rather than just going saying, yeah, because our attainment happens through enhanced play based provision because that means nothing to yeah. anybody unless you work in early years. You're going to say, right, this is how I'm going to set up my space. This is my rigour. This is my assessment. This is my direct teaching. This is my adult focus. This is my play based learning. And this is how I am going to make it work. And if you can go with a plan that looks like play and feels like play, but people who aren't experienced at working with play can see where the rigour comes from. They can see where the attainment comes from. then you're far more likely to be able to operate in that more appropriate model yeah. but what you often get is people talk about play but their, their concept of play and the person they're talking to's concept of play are literally pulls apart so you need to have that shared understanding that play is a vehicle for learning and you need to be able to articulate why and how that will happen
0: yeah it's so difficult I've talked about this in my podcast before because because I understand it I think after working in secondary why why that would be um why are you thinking that way because now I've got a four-year-old I feel like I'm coming from the other side of it and I think you know a lot of a lot of head teachers have been in key stage two. it is quite unusual really to have done so much in early years and then it's trying to kind of get them to understand and I think what I've learned over the last year, I did a podcast with um, Anna Lucas. I don't know if you know her, but um, we Dave.
1: did.
0: all oh good. Um, we talked about um, year one continuous provision quite a bit. And um, it, made, it made so much sense to me. And I was thinking, yeah, why, why have we got so many classrooms or teachers who were not able to make sure that, that they can still explore in that way? And I'm hoping that like you said before we need to especially in early years and key stage one meet children where they left off and where they're at i'm really hoping that that means that we can kind of break through and have more continuous provision in year one
1: and i think it's happening and i think more and more people and social media really helps with this are saying right this is what we do and the results have been amazing and yes we've still managed to cover the year one curriculum and okay we don't record in the same way we used to but I've still got evidence and actually my year two staff aren't saying oh my goodness what on earth you sending me my year two staff are now taking on board this concept of continuous provision because continuous provision isn't just about resources that are left out for children to access it's about practitioners creating spaces that that continue the provision for learning so when the children aren't with you and they're not doing an activity at the table and they're in the construction wherever they are you are secure that you've created a space that has the potential to continue the provision for their learning and I think what sometimes panics and I get this completely the year one staff I work with they're used to a more formal curriculum because that's how it's taught in year one somebody suddenly says we're going to do play now they're envisaging they will go on to play once you've finished your work. And mm. play is like four corners, a sand tray, some construction, maybe a paint and easel, and you'll be know, a bit of role player going on. But they are not planned spaces. They're not yeah. resourced for skill development. They haven't got enhancements added to them. They're just holding spaces because that's how that member of staff understands the concept of play. When you do lots of work around well actually it looks like play and it feels like play but actually if you dig underneath it can you see where all the rigor comes from can you see how you're extending these children learning and literally when you see the penny drop and they get it you see spaces transformed in year mm. one and in year two where they say right the difference for me was i now can articulate play in a different way i'm not just talking about the fluffy stuff i'm talking about play as the real you know high learning potential activity as long as it's been planned and executed in an appropriate way Mm. so the more people that share their journey the more people that share their provision the better it is because other people can look at it and say oh oh, right well i get that now i could try a bit of that oh i get that now i'm going to try a bit of that so i am really hopeful that one of the positives that will come out of corona as i said before is that so many more year one practitioners will give themselves permission but also will be given an in inverted commas permission mm. to have a more player-based approach and then suddenly see the powerful learning that can take place when it's done well so talking
0: about a player-based approach and, and personalized learning um have you got any tips for kind of dealing with that with the current guidance
1: well, the current guidance for September, is, I mean, it's changed already from even just a few weeks ago where we're going to be looking at the moment in no social distancing in school. You're going to be looking at bubbles, um, or within the bubble, and you're going to look at bubbles that are a class size. So rather than your maximum bubble being 15, your maximum bubble might now be 30. So in that respect, there was a quite a knee-jerk reaction, I think, from some uh, practitioners and senior leaders where you got reception classrooms that looked literally like back to Victorian days where you're mm. in desks in rows with a plastic tray and a pencil pot um, and that was the extreme version and mm. I think there are clear guidance around what we currently understand around how COVID is spread and the fact that children tend to be carriers more than sufferers we're not just talking about children's wellbeing though. You've got to think about the adults who are in that space and also who those adults potentially are going home to. So they might be going home to vulnerable adults, uh, they might be going home to old uh, adults, etc. cetera. So in the grander scheme of things, your staff wellbeing is as imp- important as your children's wellbeing. But for me, my pedagogy around player-based education and how important and effective it is hasn't changed. Some of the resources I might use, some of the resources like my soft furnishings that I might still have to put away, that's changed, but actually that doesn't affect the potential for play in a huge way. You can still engage in play-based learning using resources that you used before, as long as you are cleaning them or quarantining them and keeping them within your bubble. So, as I said before about year one, I'm going to, I would be providing lots and lots of opportunities for talk, as you do anyway, but talk with a leaning towards COVID experience or just an acknowledgement that that needs to come out somewhere. But I would be having continuous provision. I would be having play based learning. I would be having things like a water tray and possibly even a sand tray. I know the current guidance talks about sand pits not being used. But if you Sand doesn't always have to come in a sand tray. It can come in a bowl. It can come in various different forms as long as you can clean it or quarantine it before you bring it back in. But if your bubble is using it constantly, then there are options for that. Malleable materials you can still use, just maybe not shared as collectively as you might have shared malleable materials before. So it takes a little bit of creative thinking, but that's what you tend to find early years practitioners are really good at. Yeah but yeah. the pedagogy for play based learning has to stay because it's developmentally appropriate so what you're going to try and do is take what you know those children need and find clever ways of giving them what they need and again social media has been brilliant for this with people saying this is our risk assessment this is what we do this is our risk assessment this is what we do for malleable materials for for loose parts so there's loads of it out there and it's not just about saying oh i saw it on the internet so i did it obviously you've got a risk assess for your setting you've got to think about what you and your team are comfortable with but there are a myriad of options out there and the more the yeah. time goes on the more of those options are coming to the fore so you have got the option to be able to pick and choose and make a still a really exciting inviting play-based learning space as yeah. long as you're careful.
0: Yes and um, we were just talking before that um, I was pleased to see that that um, Hattie's nursery has still had lots of lots of provision there and um, and it was just things that you could throw away like pasta which which made me happy because i was a was a little bit apprehensive before that and um, so obviously you are a consultant and you won't have be been allowed to visit any schools Um so how are you delivering your training now
1: so um online mostly i started doing some online training before covid hit and then i've spent quite a lot of my time during lockdown i've actually worked Longer hours during lockdown than mm. I probably did before um, and produced way less <laughs> because it's <laughs> things like online training take so long to if you're going to make it you know decent it takes so long to do and produce and think about what people need so I still do a lot of emailing I've done loads of, of um zoom callings I've done zoom staff meetings I've done um I think as well why I've loved lockdown is people have been dead brave and asked to do things that they wouldn't normally have done so I had an email from a head that said we are reading your transition book because we really want to embrace transition lockdown is hit we have a zoom book club and uh, we read two chapters and then we get together and discuss it it's on a Wednesday afternoon I don't suppose you would mind just popping up on our zoom book club." oh wow and and so I was like well also people know you're on lockdown so what are you going to say you can't say oh no i'm out i'm on a very important business so <laughs> i was like that'll be great and so sure enough there was only six of us and uh he said oh by the way i've got somebody joining us today and they were all coming to the mugs to say how are you and i just popped up and they're like oh hello and we had a really lovely discussion about their thoughts my thoughts and i think they're going to do a little bit more work and i'm going to join them again so i've done I've done some zoom staff meetings um recorded some online training so it's been busy zoom wise i've done some webinars uh, all sorts of bits and pieces so i've certainly not been bored but i yeah. have missed the just being in the space because um atmosphere is one of those things that it's really hard to put your finger on but atmosphere plays a huge part i think in quality education so As part of some of the further study that I'm doing at the moment, as part of my doctorate, I'm thinking about um, atmospheres and how they play a part and how they influence learning. And it's really hard to try and, down what an atmosphere is but everybody knows that an atmosphere can influence how you respond to a situation yeah. so if you're thinking about atmospheres in the classroom if you've got a positive atmosphere or a playful atmosphere then you're more likely to get more positive and playful results than if you've got a stressed atmosphere or a sad atmosphere but if you try and say what is an atmosphere and how do you create one how can you that's where the interesting bit for my kind of further study comes Mm -hmm. but um zoom is great but you do miss the liveness of being in a space not just with children i love work with adults partly because um they also stretch your thinking and keep you on your toes and keep you thinking and alive and resilient because you know, the term consultant is a very grand one. Um, I'm just a bloke who's done some stuff and I'm happy to chat about the stuff that I've done. Consultant Mm. is not really a title. Like some people will call themselves early years experts. And again, I really struggle with that title because what makes me more of an expert, I've seen more expertise in practitioners in interactions with children than I can ever offer. I've seen some amazing practice that I would say that was expertly done. So... Mm. That term sits difficult, or it's a difficult term with me, but when you go into schools and work with practitioners, because you go in with a title, um, they love, and rightly so, to just pick your brains. And I love yeah. that, and I'll always say, right, I have not got all the answers. I might be able to direct you to somebody who does, because I'm really privileged to be able to know lots of people and read lots of stuff. Or I'll give it a good go. Or between us, I reckon we could probably solve the problem. But I'm not coming here as an encyclopedia for early years because I do not know everything. I know what I know. And also, all the time I find, partly through further study, a lot through experience, when you know better, you do better. And you don't know that you don't know until you realise that you didn't know. And then you know, yeah. and then you change what you do. So yeah. it's a lifelong journey, and I love that. So. I miss aspects of that and I'm looking forward to a time when we do get back to the new normal and you're able to have that kind of social interaction again but I'm still happy for people to pick my brains via social media or by email or online and also live
0: yeah yeah this is it although I do feel a bit glued to my phone at the moment I'm like oh that's where all my outside interaction is I need to put it down um, but what is nice about it, because I'm all for the positives in everything, um, and I suppose for you, is that you're probably reaching a lot more people by having your training online and, and people being able to access it that maybe couldn't access it before, and that that's a positive. So where do you think education's going in the next 10 years?
1: Well, it's, do you want the uh, real answer, the hopeful answer? <laughs> I'll give you both. Yes. I really... I hope that, and again, I think COVID might be a catalyst for this. This is a massive opportunity. When New normals becoming a really tired phrase, but it's a massive opportunity to, to reinvent what we do. It's made us in education have to stop and reconsider. And there have been some really good things that have been, come out of this remote learning, and there have been some really not so good things. But it would be a shame if eventually we just waited until there's a vaccine, or whatever it may be, herd immunity, and then we just go back to how it was. So I am hopeful that we will never go back to just how it was, because we'll take lots of the positives and now build that in to practice. For me, personally, because I am so passionate about the power of good play-based learner not just for early years children but literally right the way through to adulthood I would hope that this begins the spark of a fire that will burn even if it's a slow burn over time where people start to bring more play into their practice so that becomes normal and once that not a bit like with the transition that I talked about at the beginning once the unfamiliar Familiar becomes familiar then you can step into the new unfamiliar and make that familiar then step into the new unfamiliar and if all of that is based around play then we could get to a point where all the things we're saying god it's amazing because in year one some schools actually do continuous provision in year one we're going to be yeah. saying do you remember when nobody did continuous provision and now we've got this going on and it was way beyond year one that's year six, what I'm yeah. will happen yeah because it's some schools do and when they do it is really successful but again it's always really successful if done well and if the team are committed and the leadership believe in it just because it happens well in one school does not mean to say exactly the same model would work in another because if you haven't got the commitment the belief uh, then it's it's never going to work so I guess,
0: I guess it's the understanding as well isn't it it's not yeah. just about chucking out some fancy dress and saying okay we've got a role play area now it's knowing why like you said before knowing why you're doing it for that particular moment in time
1: but I think teacher training will change and I know people who are in um initial teacher training and the kind of things that they focus on in their course post and post COVID, that will change because there's all of this talk around more continuous provision moving into key stage one. And when we begin to have teachers who are coming into the profession already aware of the possibilities, mm. then they're starting from a point further on in terms of that aspect than they are now, which means also as they progress, they will push it further. So that is my hope and that's not like a pie in the sky hope i think given what what it's going to be careful of is in my little social media bubble i tend to surround myself with like-minded people who say similar things so i'm surrounded by people who are experimenting with player provision in year one so to me it feels like loads of people are doing it it'll be interesting to step outside of the bubble into the real world mm. and see whether it's just actually my little early years bubble or whether actually it is catching on but even if it is just my early years bubble that's a start and if I can do anything to help to support that I think it's so important for children but also for adults then I am more than happy to invest what I do know about play and what I do know in terms of how it's been successful in the work that I've done and share that with people to help them to kind of bring it into their pedagogy and their practice.
0: Thank you. Right, final two closing questions then. So um who was your favourite teacher at school and why?
1: Depends which school you're talking about. In infant school, my favourite teacher was Miss Dickinson, who I absolutely loved and even though I was only four, I can oh I just loved her. I loved her. And although she got me into the worst trouble I have ever been into in my school in my entire life. And I say that at infant school. In that we're talking about 1974, and Miss Dickinson, for whatever reason, uh, was clearly not somebody who chose to shave her legs. And so, uh, you know where this is going. At story time, I was sat right in front of her. Now I like to think that's because I was special. Now I know what I know about early years. I know exactly why Alistair was sat right in front of Miss Dickinson.
0: And was on the, the spot story- as well? Before,
1: You know, well, you might not know, but I know as a man who's had to wear tights at various times in my life for various things, but that's a whole other story. When you've got a hairy leg and you put on a tight, the hair tends to form a bit of a crop circle because it gets flattened underneath the tight. But also, some of the hairs will protrude from out of the tight. And so at some point, so I am told, or I do have a very, very vivid memory of what happened (laughs) as a result. I don't remember the act itself. I took one of the hairs that was protruding through the tight of the lovely Miss Dickinson and pulled it and so during story time I actually pulled my teacher's leg hair and which resulted in me being sent to Miss Hall who was the head teacher and in those days if you went to see Miss Hall that was really bad but she wrote your name in the black book and it was a proper big black book and your name was in the black book with your misdemeanor and a note was sent home to your parents to say, today Alistair was in the black book. And my mum still has that note to this day that says, today Alistair was in the black book, and it says, for pulling Miss Dickinson's leg hair. So I don't know what is more embarrassing <laughs> for her, the fact I was in the black book, or somebody wrote on a piece of paper for pulling teacher's leg hair. Anyway, even though I pulled her leg hair once, it went in the black book, um, I loved her. I absolutely loved her. Um, <laughs> At junior school, which is a little village junior school, my brother is two years older than me and was always very, very, very bright. He's one of those very bright children. And I found all the way through junior school, I was always Gareth's brother. So I don't have, I enjoyed being in junior school, but I don't have like really particularly wonderful memories of being at junior school because I was just constantly compared to my brother all the way through school. Not his fault, but a bit miserable. But when I got to secondary school, we were on split site, so I was in a completely different site to him. And I had an amazing classics and performing arts teacher called Katrina Brooke, who now sadly has died of cancer. But she was just amazing. And she was a character, and she was a little bit bohemian, and she was a little bit off the wall, but she did all the drama stuff, and she did all the music stuff, and she was literally one of those people that said, you know, you can achieve anything and i'm going to help you to do it and she was a massive inspiration to me all the way through secondary education because she was just never wavering in her commitment to all of the children she came across and the fact that her role as an educator was to support you regardless of who you were what you were how you presented yourself That was her job, that was her passion. And so, when I look back on my secondary education, she stands out just for her commitment to the profession. And for me, she just made me, she wasn't in my family, but she had unwavering belief that I would do the things that I wanted to do. And I think when you're hormonal, and when you're doubting yourself, and when life Mm -hmm. is hard, somebody in, in school saying that to you makes a significant difference. So at different stages in my education, there have been different people, but I stick with it. We all remember the good ones. And I always thought, well, when you're an early years teacher, because they're so little, you never know quite whether they'll remember you further mm. on. And not that I necessarily want to be remembered, but just that if I can have a really positive influence, Now I've taught and, you know, had so many children pass through my school, hundreds, if not thousands of them. If you can have a positive influence on at least some of those children, then that's a good thing to do.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. Okay. last question then. What did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Um, A Blue Peter presenter, always. (laughs) I even wrote to Blue Peter and got a letter back from a, a man called John Comerford, who was for a long time uh, an executive producer of the BBC and I wrote to him when I was about 11 and said I would like to be a presenter this is what I do I can play the trumpet to grade three and I can play the piano and all that kind of all the things you write in a letter and he wrote back and said this all sounds brilliant you just keep doing the things that you are doing and uh, you know, in those days because I'm I am of the kind of Leslie Judd moving into the kind of Karen Keating uh, vet fielding was right at the end of my kind of you know I was probably a student by then and he just said keep doing all the things that you do and when you're a bit older uh, then get in touch again and we'll see what you're up to and just my life took a different path and I never quite rode back to John I often wonder if I'd wait till I was 16 and wrote back to John my life could have been very different
0: yeah i was gonna say i mean i wonder i wonder what would have happened
1: (laughs) what would have happened nothing probably (laughs) you
0: never (laughs) know um, i mean you do presenting now
1: To i just but then i found a passion and i think when i talk to my boys about you know what they might and might not do i don't really i genuinely don't mind what they do i just want them to find a passion Mm. And whatever that passion may be, because it doesn't no matter how well paid you are, you're, you work for a very long time. Yeah. And I have been so lucky that most of the time, most of the days of my work and life have been days that I have really, really enjoyed. I mean, they've been challenging ones, they've been crappy ones, but most of them I've enjoyed. I have loved my profession mm. and I love my boys to have that not it's a utopian world where everything's wonderful all the time because there are some really crap bits about teaching but fundamentally that daily interaction with children if that really excites you really gets your fire burning and really floats your boat like we said at the beginning the fact that they can literally lift you off the floor just Mm. by being little rays of sunshine who could want to do anything other than that so I'm very happy the choice that I made and that I didn't write to John and I'm not <laughs> now on the blue Pe- blue Peter annual f- somewhere. Well, thank you so
0: much. I've I've laughed a lot and I've learned so much. And you know, you've you've demonstrated just how experienced and, and knowledgeable you are and and you've given so much valuable content so I just want to say a massive thank you for that because I know there'll there'll be a lot of year one teachers even possibly year two reception you know nursery teachers who feel a little bit more confident that it's okay because ABC does says I can do that (laughs) Um, and I know know that, that you laugh about that but um you know my team were really excited that um they were going to get to ask you questions even though not personally through me um so thank you so much for for sharing on the podcast and um yeah it's just going to be really helpful for so many
1: you are very welcome it's been a pleasure i don't know how long we chatted for literally
0: quite a long time to be honest yeah
1: (laughs) you're gonna have to do some serious editing otherwise people will have to watch it like (laughs) or listen in three different parts
0: no no I don't tend to cut good content out it just means it's two car car journeys but yes thank you so much
1: you're welcome it's a pleasure
0: thank you so much for listening i'm sure you'll agree that that interview was packed with useful information and relatable stories if you enjoyed it and you work in early years definitely check out his online training you'll find everything that Alistair and i talked about in the show notes And if this is the first time that you're listening to The Teacher's Podcast, remember to subscribe and do explore the other episodes as I've had some truly inspirational and knowledgeable guests. It's a really great time to tap into some free CPD. You can also join me in The Teacher's Podcast community on Facebook. See you next week. Thank you for listening. The Teacher's Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets, a provider of high-quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.